All right, everyone, welcome to episode 15 of Wake Up Call. Uh, this is going to be a rant episode, uh, as normal, uh, to follow our interview episode that we had previously. And Milda's going to kick us right off, right away. Milda, what are you talking about today? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about feminism once again, but I'm going to talk about specifically... Big surprise! <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'm going to talk specifically how the feminist movement is good for men and all people in general. And this idea came to me actually during our last episode when we were talking about violence against men and the family and intimate partner violence. Because I kind of noticed how a lot of the problems in, in that situation where, where men are experiencing violence and don't speak up or don't get help as victims comes from the patriarchy, you know, and the biggest thing that the feminist movement wants to uh, destroy and sort of wants to fight against. So that's why I want to talk about why the feminist movement is actually a good thing for all people and how a lot of the patriarchal standards is what is actually ruining our families and the way that we have relationships and the way that we raise our children. But Generally, I want to have like an overview and then go in deeper how the feminist movement can actually help solve men's issues specifically. So I've talked to many men in my life about this issue and there's a lot of negative opinions about feminists. I think it's partly due to the reason that everything on the internet nowadays is so sensational and I feel like a lot of movements are represented by these very fringe and radical ideas that don't necessarily represent the whole movement, it's just a small part of it, but it's seen like it's the, the common ideas of it, uh, which I think is very bad. Uh, for example, there a lot of men think that the feminist movement is just a bunch of radical women who hate men or who are just very, very sensitive and sort of speaking about issues that shouldn't be even important because there's more important issues in the world. And I think that this is, you know, a flawed opinion. I do very much recognize that there are a lot of popular women on the internet, especially on TikTok, who have thousands and millions of followers who might speak ideas that are a bit, um, <laughs> I would say, not, not intelligent or not analyzed or not truly feminist from like a let's dismantle the patriarchy view so that's maybe why a lot of men don't like feminists but generally i think a lot of men should have a deeper look into what these women are talking about and uh, into what victims are talking about to like really understand what it's all about so a lot of these women that are on the internet that are advocating for feminism they often talk about how you know, misogyny still exists and how fragile the male ego is and how they've had many negative experiences with men in their lives. And men sort of tend to take this as a personal attack, you know, because they feel like they're sort of being generalized into this bigoted behavior. And that's why they say, you know, not all men or I'm not like that or you're just making things up or you're over-exaggerating your experiences. I feel like in this way, men a lot of the times tend to put the blame on the victims of negative experiences. 
And I don't think that men should take this as a personal attack whatsoever. And I think that they should really try to listen to what these women are saying because they're just speaking about their traumas, you know, as victims or as people who have been disadvantaged in the past. And really listening to them and not blaming them can really help you understand their position and also sort of overcome your own issues with that. You have to understand that like many women nowadays feel extremely disappointed by men and don't trust men just because they have had so many experiences in their lives where they have felt let down by them, whether by their fathers or brothers or boyfriends or uncles, it doesn't matter, but they have simply lost the trust for them and it's normal to want to sort of regain it back, you know. And if you think that you're still not part of the problem in this whole movement and that you don't add to, the, to, the, to these bad experiences, congratulations, I guess. But I would really highly doubt that you're not fully uh, faulty for these things. Because I can guarantee that as a man living in, in this world, you still have certain friends that joke about these sexist or rapey things and I still imagine that maybe once or twice in your life at least you have laughed at these jokes or simply notice that your friends might not be really respecting girls when they're drunk or not respecting the concept of consent and you could have had the chance to sort of discipline them but you sort of just chose not to say anything and to opt out or to be a bystander. And when you have this behavior, you're simply sort of contributing to the problem. And you cannot say that you're not part of the problem if you're a bystander. So if this all goes on, I think that those patriarchal standards will just stay in our society and keep harming men and women altogether. So now I'm going to tell you four issues that men have that can be legitimately solved by supporting the feminist movement and giving it more political capital and more attention in the world. Firstly, I want to talk about mental health issues because all people have mental health issues, right? Men and women have them. Um, but this is especially bad for men uh, because of the patriarchy, because of toxic masculinity, because of the view that a man has to be strong and not cry and not talk about these sensitive issues that they can't really let their emotions out. A lot of the times men bottle their emotions up and don't seek help or simply kind of don't even recognize that they have issues in the first place. A lot of men might have depression and never even think about it or want to improve their lives because they think that that shows that they're weak people in general. We know that more men than women commit suicide, right? meaning less of them actually seek help, and many of them have these mental health issues. And I want to stress once again that the concept of this strong man, of this, you know, macho man, comes from the patriarchy. It comes from the very old family model that sort of sees the man as the superior one, as the bread maker, as the one that protects, as the one that is always strong and never sensitive. All of these ideas come from that model. And we still have this model in some families in the West, in liberal democracies, right? 
So what the feminist movement is trying to do right now, especially with women and also with all people, LGBT people, they're trying to shed light on these issues and trying to sort of say that all people experience this. It is okay to want some time off. It is okay to feel negative emotions and trying to recommend people to go to therapy and to explore your mental health. And they've helped thousands, if not millions of people with this. However, I think a lot of men have still not joined this movement and have still not talked to their friends about this, um, which is a problem. I think that if more men opened up about this issue with people that are close in their environment, we would have much healthier men, much happier men, men who are liberated, men who can take into account that there's people of all sorts of identities um, and to, who are not confined in their negative emotions. Secondly, a second issue that a lot of men might have is the sexual assault of men. Um, this is also kind of a silent issue, in part due to the patriarchy's construction of gender norms, uh, where basically they paint men as being, you know, obsessed with sex or sort of the, the dominators in sexual relations where women sort of the obedient objects or sort of just people for the pleasure of men. These are the gender constructs and the sex sort of understandings that we have had from the past. And we talk about this issue, I feel like we, we kind of talk about this theme more in episode 14, so I would recommend you listen to that episode first. But this is also all about how we imagine gender. And if we destroy parts of the patriarchy that talk about gender, if we see gender as a more fluid thing, if we see women not as sexual objects, but you know, as owners of their own bodies, we can also see men not as some sort of uh, crazy people that just want sex with everyone and that cannot work with kids, for example. I know so many um, kindergarten teachers that are men constantly face these sort of negative comments that, you know, it's not appropriate for you as a man to work in a kindergarten with kids just because of that old view, an archaic view that men are these um, predatory people. So I think it would be a lot better if we would deconstruct these. Thirdly, I wanted to talk about how men experience body image issues and body shaming. This is a particularly heated area in like the feminist debate or the woman versus men debate because so many women have been coming out and speaking about body image issues. We have had a complete revolution in the modeling industry with more plus size models being represented. However, we don't often see this in the male side of the issue. And a lot of men feel left out, a lot of men feel isolated and not respected, I guess, by this whole movement. But once again, I want to remind you that the sort of understanding of what is beautiful, the beauty standards and what you should look like also comes a lot due to the patriarchy and capitalism. Um, once capitalists understood that they can actually make profit off of telling people how they should look, they very easily utilize that. And we can see this by how beauty standards change every decade. You know, in the early 2000s, we had low-rise jeans, we had fuller women, and that was celebrated. 
However, right now uh, we have thin models that are coming back into the scene and that is the norm, right? Whereas five years ago, we had Kim Kardashian as the beauty ideal. So it's always about, you know, drink this, uh, drink these pills or drink these detox teas and you will become beautiful. Uh, it's all part due to capitalism and also uh, due to the patriarchy because women are seen as objects just for the beauty of men, for like their eyes to, to look at. And also men are seen as, you know, strong and muscular and big and tall to protect the family, which is also not the, not the situation of many men. And it harms them. It harms their self-esteem and it harms the way that they live every day. And I know that a lot of men might tell me right now, Milda, you know, but women are the ones who are shaming me for my height, saying that I'm short. Uh, women are the ones saying that I'm too skinny and they don't want to date me. And yeah, I totally get it. I am not saying that toxicity cannot exist in all people, in men and women. I think that a lot of women have this sort of internalized misogyny and they have themselves been indoctrinated by the patriarchy. I mean, a great example that I can give of this is the mythical personality of Karens that we have created. I think that Karens are a very great example of internalized misogyny. You know, whenever Karens come out into the wild, they always want to sort of exert superiority over other people, especially women. They want to put others down to feel better about themselves. They have huge egos. They think that they're always right. They always put down waiters, cashiers, just general people, workers. Um, this is very masculine, I guess, traditionally masculine behavior or traditionally patriarchal behavior. So I totally understand that a lot of women might put you down. But if your anger is on women, I think it is generally misplaced because your anger should be on the patriarchy that indoctrinates women to be this way and to believe these gender stereotypes. Um, and lastly, I touched on this a little bit once again, but I want to repeat that there's a saying, boys will be boys, which is also an issue for men because it kind of shapes their life path. As I've already mentioned, many men feel stigma going into working in kindergartens or primary schools or even working as nurses because they feel that it's not traditionally masculine to do so and they will feel some sort of negative emotions from that. But this also takes a huge toll on the mental health of men. If you have some sort of paths in life that you necessarily need to take in order to be a man, that is very harmful. I think we should totally liberate men from these kind of concepts so they could choose any profession or life path they want to take because boys will not be boys, you know, boys will be human. That is the whole point. So in conclusion, I would say that if you really care about men's issues, it is really time to talk about them on your own, like on the regular with your friends on the internet and call toxic behaviors out. Call out, call out women for being uh, patriarchal and uh, misogynistic themselves, right? I think that if you only talk about men's issues, 
when women talk about their own issues and you feel threatened or you feel like there's a shadow on top of your issues, that is not really advocating for anything. Uh, that is just putting women down and talking about what aboutism in politics, right? So I just want to say that we're all burdened, all of us, men and women, by the patriarchy. And it is much easier for us to join forces and dismantle it than sort of attack each other. Wow, that was a lot contained. And again, I, I've always loved hearing about these uh, feminist theories uh, lectures that you just seem to have on demand. Um, so there was a lot said there, and I don't have time to sort of like unpack everything, but I think there's a couple of things that I want to clarify for myself and I think would be helpful for our audience is firstly just a definition of like, what is a, what is the patriarchy? Yeah, uh, I think this is a hard question. I mean, I think the patriarchy is generally a society which is governed by the thought that men are inherently superior to women. So this division of genders where one is always superior and masculinity is the dominant and better feature. Okay, that's, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good de definition. And and my question is, when, when you talk about how, how capitalism sort of leads to these um, inequalities and, and, and issues within sh like body shaming and things like that, like, what is the mechanism for that beyond like, okay, corporations are trying to like, sell something and they sell a new thing uh all the time and they try and, and and fit with trends like hasn't this been happening for generations like the ideal women's body in ancient greece versus the ideal women's body in other ancient societies has evolved and and, and changes over time depending on what the socioeconomic situation and various other cultural factors are how does um, capitalism, which is a very recent force, like, you know, a couple hundred years old, how does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Uh, I think capitalism plays the key role in sort of persuading people that A, there is something wrong with them, and B, that they can change it. Uh, I know that beauty standards have changed before capitalism ever existed, but I guess people didn't feel such a pressure to uphold to those beauty standards or are we sure about them. that i don't know if that's i don't know if that's true i mean like obviously with the advent of social media it's made the visibility of these things much higher and made it a much more like pressing issue because you see like a lot of people with these edited bodies and whatnot but i'm not convinced that that, that people weren't doing the same sorts of toxic things albeit on a lesser scale because of the internet um, back in the day. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I somehow find it hard to believe that um, ideal beauty standards did not lead to various changes in behavior that are toxic. Yeah, I think it's a very intertwined issue. Maybe before when society was kind of uh, divided into the very poor, like the majority of society, and then like a minority where the elites and the people who could actually, you know, dress in pretty pretty clothes and kind of show off their bodies maybe was different in a, a part of history. Right now, I feel like, uh, especially with women, uh, doesn't matter what kind of socioeconomic background you are from, but 
it's quite easy to to want to change the way that you look especially with globalization and the internet as you mentioned and with the with with it becoming extremely easier to like consume products and uh, i don't know work out or something like that and also i think it is quite easy for men to perpetrate the ideal beauty standards from their side uh, i mean i know that both men and women engage in fat phobia and and things like that which also contributes to the whole issue but isn't it like relatively easy to sort of opt out of these things like all it takes is just like a little bit of courage to be like you know like i don't really care about traditional beauty standards all that much i don't really care about uh this all that much on, on this avenue in particular it's it's very much an individual issue and if you make the choice to opt into, you know, whatever society says, I mean, I think that should be considered a choice that you make rather than something that you're forced to do. I think it really depends on the person. Uh, I think I've listened to a TED talk actually about how even Arnold Schwarzenegger in his peak form, he would call himself the most disgusting creature that he's ever seen which shows that like, even if you're extremely beautiful and even if you're a very strong person, you might still have these sort of body image issues. So I think it's really purely on personal will and your personality and how you can overcome these sort of pressures from the outside. Yes, very true. So thank you for the questions. Now I, I want to ask you, what are you talking about today? Yeah, I'm going in a completely different direction, and we're going to look at foreign policy between my favorite country of Canada and a country that definitely does not hold that title, China. So this Canada-China foreign relations um, saga, if you will, really started in 2018, and uh, at least that's where I want my part of the story and what's relevant to this to start. And it all started with the detention of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou uh, by Canada um, for extradition to the United States, where she was facing various criminal allegations and charges. So the way that Canada and the U.S. work is that, let's say, someone that is accused of committing a federal crime in the U.S. is in Canada. The Canadian authorities will arrest that person and extradite them to the U.S. so that they can face their charges. The, the countries have... An agreement that both will do that, uh, vice versa. So Canada, at the request of the U.S., arrested Meng Wanzhou and uh, basically detained her, placed her under house arrest. In retaliation for this, the Chinese government um, detained two Canadian citizens that were traveling in China, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They're known in Canada as just the two Michaels who China detained in retaliation for this. They weren't really facing any real charges. It was just a bunch of fake accusations. And in 2021, when the US Department of Justice made a deal with Meng Wanzhou um, and allowed Canada to release her, immediately, six hours later, the Michaels were released and on their way back to Canada. So it wasn't even, it wasn't, there was not even a semblance of, of legitimacy in these arrests. It was very clear that it was a, a tit-for-tat situation, that if you have um, our executive that has government relations, we're going to detain your citizens. This was a massive um, scandal and the beginning of this rocky period of relationships between Canada and China. The way the Chinese see it, at least, is basically some annoying, irrelevant country that 
thinks it has a lot more clout on the global stage than it actually does is getting in the way of them playing a game between superpowers. And in reality, that's what this Meng Wanzhou situation was. This really was a diplomatic war between the US and China and seeing who blinked first. And Canada was just a useless pawn in the middle of that, getting in the way of these two superpowers at the behest of the United States. So let's go through the incidents that have happened since then in order of like importance, you know, escalating to the very end and just try and find out what exactly these mean for China-Canada relations and for Canada more specifically and some actions that I think the Canadian government should be taking in response uh, to Chinese escalation. So first and least important, but extremely funny, is uh, a tweet that this Chinese diplomat put out uh, with a photo of Trudeau. I'm going to read it out and I quote, Boy, you're referring to Trudeau, your greatest achievement is to have ruined the friendly relations between China and Canada and have turned Canada into a running dog of the United States. Wow. Though this was just some random Chinese diplomat saying this, I think it's a great example of how the Chinese government views Canada's role in this broader geopolitical game that is currently being um, played. And this was in direct response to uh, comments that Trudeau made about how he's not going to release Meng Wanzhou just because the Chinese government is trying to intimidate them. The reason that I call the detainment of Meng Wanzhou a turning point in, in China-Canada relations is because it seems that as of late, China is taking a much more hostile and active role in both Canadian foreign policy and Canadian domestic affairs. Here are two examples that I think highlight this and are an example of how crazy and invasive China is being to Canada. The first is the case of Chinese police stations in Canada. So this was first uncovered about a month ago by a human rights advocacy group called Safeguard Defenders that are based out of Spain um, and are very active in defending the rights of Chinese minorities and Chinese citizens overseas. They've released a list of 54 foreign police stations that were operated by the Chinese government in secret. Of course, overseas police stations are illegal under our very notions of international laws and sovereignty and things like that. So three of these 54 police stations are listed in Canada's greater Toronto area. Uh, I believe that they were in the Markham, Mississauga, Vaughan area, um, if you know where that is. It's areas that are basically suburbs of Toronto. So what is the purpose of these stations? What are the Chinese government doing with these police stations that are there? Here's what Safeguard Defender says. Safeguard Defender says that there's evidence that individuals connected to these stations have been involved in persuading and intimidating nationals suspected of committing crimes to return to China to face their criminal proceedings. Essentially, they are coming into Canada, sending their government officials into Canada, arresting people and sending them back to China to face trial. They are enforcing Chinese laws on Canadian territory. This is absolutely alarming. If you're a Canadian citizen and this is the first time that you're hearing about this, listen up. This gets way worse. First of all, this is a massive violation of national sovereignty. And I'm going to read what Canada's Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, our national police force, says about this. They say that they take threats to the security of individuals living in Canada very seriously. And they are aware 
that foreign states may seek to intimidate or harm communities or individuals within Canada. As Conservative um, Member of Parliament Michael Chong points out, there's evidence that these police stations operated by the Chinese government in Canada are being used to repress Tibetan and Uyghur rights advocates who have fled China and are now advocating for their rights in Canada. What the heck? China is using their police stations and their government resources to come after human rights defenders that are outside of their borders, take them back to China, and arrest them. Of course, we don't know everything about this because this was really secret information that's been released to the press, um, and it's an active investigation, so obviously we're going to be learning more. But if any of this is even close to being true, these are like allegations that basically mean that China is considered an enemy, and then they're they're actively conducting espionage operations and actively conducting um, like operations in defiance of Canada's national security interests. Of course, Beijing has been very, you know, in denial about all of this happening. They're basically saying that, look, this is all lies, the Canadian press are lying, this is absolute propaganda, but obviously Beijing is going to deny it. They also deny that Tibet is a country. They also deny that the Uyghurs are uh, being are undergoing a genocide in Xinjiang. And they also deny that Tiananmen Square massacre ever happened. I don't believe a word that these people say. All right, here's the second thing. In addition to the police station, perhaps something that's even more alarming is that the Chinese Communist Party has infiltrated the constituency offices of Canadian members of parliament and candidates. So here's the sources that Global News has cited um, as being anonymous sources within the Canadian intelligence community. They say that China has a list of 13 candidates that were in the 2019 election who had been actively compromised in a campaign to subvert Canadian democracy. These included agents into the offices of MPs in order to influence policy, an attempt to co-opt and corrupt former Canadian officials to gain leverage in Ottawa, and a campaign to punish Canadian politicians whom the People's Republic of China views as threats to its interests. Michael Chong, the Conservative MP that I mentioned earlier, is one of those people that has actually been sanctioned by the Chinese government. What the heck? Is this a spy movie? Chinese spies in the Canadian government trying to subvert our foreign policy efforts at combating China's repressive human rights record and, um, and predatory trading practices? Of course, Trudeau has been quite cagey about what he knew and, and when. This intelligence source says that he was briefed. He says that he wasn't briefed and only learned about it when it came out in the press. But regardless of, of whether Trudeau was informed or not, this is a very concerning thing that Canadians need to be taking seriously. The fact that a foreign government is having an active role in our democracy, attempting to subvert it to its national interests, works against our national interests as Canadians. And the media needs to do a better job reporting this. This has been vastly undercovered by the Canadian media, and I think that we ought to be talking about it more. So, as I'm speaking to you, where do things stand now? As many of you have seen, the G20 conference, Xi Jinping, uh, China's president, had a very public confrontation with Justin Trudeau, basically expressing his displeasure at what Trudeau has been saying to the media about their conversations, about the Chinese government. 
and things like that. Um, and I, I heard it described by a Chinese Canadian political commentator on the Candleland podcast as th that the tone that she was saying, he, of course, he was speaking through a tra uh, translator, but the tone and word choice that she was using in Chinese was akin to a father talking to a rebel son or a son that has disappointed him in some way. And again, this is what I'm saying. The Chinese government doesn't view Canada as their equals. It doesn't see them really as a sovereign state. It sort of sees them as this like tiny little country that can be messed around with, that can be infiltrated. Um, they would never speak this way so publicly to a US president, to a German chancellor, to the UK prime minister. No, they see Canada as this country that is meddling in their affairs and as a country that can easily be pushed around. And, um, you know, Trudeau, for his part, has mostly been doing the right thing when it comes to China. He did stand up to Xi Jinping in that confrontation. He said, look, in Canada, we believe in fair and open discourse. You and I are going to disagree on a lot, but th th that's how we work. This is, this is how our country works. Trudeau is still reluctant to call the Uyghur genocide a genocide. He's been very cagey about that. But he has made moves to strengthen trade ties with Canadian allies so that Canada's economy is far less reliant on China, making anti-China moves far less risky to the Canadian citizen. He recently unveiled his Indo-Pacific strategy, which aims to shore up uh, ties with India, Japan, and other um, Asian democracies um, as a way to sort of hedge against um, this Chinese uh, expansionism and Chinese interference. Um, he has been mostly defiant to Chinese intimidation, like was evidence with Xi Jinping. But what he needs to do on the domestic front is take real action on Chinese infiltration of our democracy on the domestic side. This looks like, you know, having safeguards at Chinese infiltration of um, MPs offices. This looks like calling like a cease and desist, which he just did actually yesterday morning on these Chinese police stations. These are all actions that have been done, but they need to go a lot further and they need to be preventative as well. Canada is not a powerful country, but we cannot be pushed around. We need to take a page out of our Lithuanian friends book and stand up to bullies. What a wholesome way to finish off your rant. <laughs> Thank you. It was really interesting because I have never really heard of this before. Definitely. I think the media under under analyzes these issues that might seem a bit fringe, but they're still important. Um, I guess, firstly, I just want to say that, of course, I'm always kind of I always am like the devil's advocate, I feel like whenever a Chinese topic comes because I feel like a lot of the things that you mention that China is doing to Canada, you know, and I think China is probably doing this to other countries as well. They're always painted as like the most evil guys and just guys that we should not respect, guys that we should get out of our country and stuff like that. But I feel like the US also with their power as a superpower has often also did this to weaker countries, the surveillance, the trying to influence domestic policy, but no one really calls them the evil guys or the bad yes, guys. Yes, people do. I think I think people do. I can. I'm very comfortable condemning the way that the U.S. Um, overthrows other sovereign governments and things like that, and yeah. installs puppet dictators. 
I'm happy that you are, but definitely I, I mean, the general discourse, especially with people who maybe don't have this knowledge is totally different. And I think that we should be talking more about how superpowers definitely, you know, disregard the sovereignty of other states. Uh, some questions that I have for you, though, is what do you think you, you talked about what kind of China strategy you would want to see from Canada? But I wanted to ask you, do you think that the United States plays a role in helping you do the strategy? Or do you think that you should kind of be independent and show where you stand alone as a country? Absolutely. Canada cannot do anything um, without the, the backing of the U.S. and without increasing their ties um, to the United States. Um, and I think Christian Freeland, um, Canada's finance minister and deputy prime minister, and the treasury secretary of the U.S., Janet Yellen, have been very clear in the way that they coordinate their strategies and are, are, are talking about this issue. Um, they, both of them have brought up the idea of, of, of friendshoring, which seems, seems to be the direction that both of these countries are moving in. This is basically keeping the sort of neoliberal idea of, of offshoring and, 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 you know, globalized labor supply, globalized manufacturing supply, globalized supply chains, yet moving them away from authoritarian countries and sort of forming a trade block of democracies that sort of work together and are globalized, but it's sort of certain conditions that need to be met in order to play the game along with them. Um, and I think in response to, you know, China's expansionist policies, I think that this is the right direction that we need to go in. I think that there needs to be an effort made for democratic countries to all sort of sort out their strategies, sort out their plans in a way that is coordinated and the way that like, maintains the benefits of globalization without caving into authoritarian regimes. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how this is going to pan out because I think that it's a big trade-off that democracies uh, around the world would have to do to sort of completely isolate themselves or at least, you know, change trade policy like significantly in order to stay away from authoritarian states. But it's going to be interesting to see that pan out. Um, the second question I have for you is about the Chinese police stations in Canada. It's really interesting, an interesting concept. And if you say that it undermines domestic law. And I was thinking about like the more legal side of it and what can be done about it. Do you have ideas on this topic? I mean, the police stations are secret in, in, in China. China did not want the Canadian government to know about these things. These were clandestine operations that were basically meant to like intimidate the Chinese diaspora in, in, in Canada. The greater Toronto area has a lot of Chinese Canadian people. Um, and that is the reason that these police stations were over there. Um, they're illegal. I mean, it's it's plain and simple. Like it's, it's against the law. Trudeau has put a cease and desist order. The Canadian government has said like, look, you need to shut these down. You need to get out. It's, I mean, there's not much more to be done now that we know of the existence of them. We need to find out if there's any more that um, the organization had not discovered yet. And we need to shut them down, plain and simple. The people that are running them should be arrested or deported. Thank you. Uh, it's been very interesting. And I think that about wraps it up. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to episode 15. It's been a pleasure. 
Of course, don't forget to follow us on all social media, Instagram, TikTok, and support us and tell your opinions and participate in the fan polls. We really love when you do that. And see you all next week.